Uh, hello, um, Afra friends. Good to be back with you. I uh, hope you had a, a good and an edifying Easter. Um, it's good to be reminded often that uh, the Lord Jesus uh, died for our sins but was raised again. And so we've invested all our hope in uh, a risen Saviour, one who uh, is the first fruits of a great harvest of uh, resurrection souls that uh, will come about one day um, when he returns. So uh, we're going to resume our series uh, looking at the book of Acts and we're going to uh, continue uh, where we left off last time at Acts 20. So let's pray before we begin. Uh, Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We pray that you would help us as we come to it today to come expectantly and reverently. We pray that as we uh, look at the Apostle Paul's interactions with the the elders of the church in Ephesus, we pray that you would help us to learn things that uh, you want us to know so that we can be uh, good members of your church in Mafra. Uh, And so we pray that you would instruct us today uh, and we ask that the Lord Jesus would be glorified uh, in our minds, in our hearts, in our meditations. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, Well, Acts chapter 20, uh, please turn it up. We're going to start at verse 17 and uh, then finish up at the end of the chapter. Now, uh, Paul has been in Ephesus. Uh, He spent three years there, as we'll discover, Uh, and he's uh, he's on the road, he's travelling, uh, and so we pick it up uh, as he gets back to nearby Ephesus. So verse 17, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, We must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. I mean, United States high schools, uh, they have a position that they call the valedictorian. The valedictorian is charged with the responsibility of making a speech of farewell at the end of their final year of schooling. And they do so on the behalf of the entire graduating class. So the valedictorian uh, gives a farewell speech because that's what valedictory means. It means farewell, uh, farewell speech. The valedictorian will no doubt look back over the times that they've had together as fellow students and then we'll probably have some words of wisdom about uh, the, word, the, the world that waits them uh, beyond the school gates. Um, this is Paul's valedictory speech to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And it boils down to this, he says to them, watch out for wolves. He says that after he goes from them, there'll be savage wolves who come in amongst them. And so Paul is laying out principles that are based on the example that they've witnessed of his life amongst them, and of the things that he's taught them, and he warns them about the future, that it's an uncertain future, it's a future which has risks attached to it. So this is his valedictory, his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. Now the context of it is this. Uh, He has started his missionary uh, journey in Antioch. He's worked his way all through the the, uh, Roman province of Asia. He gets to Ephesus where he stayed for three years. We read about that uh, a little later in this reading here. He's, he's been in Ephesus three years, plenty of time for them to get to know him and him to get to know them. He moved on from Ephesus, went into Europe, uh, through Macedonia and down into Corinth. And it's at Corinth that he says goodbye. He, for, he forges a plan that he'll sail back to Jerusalem because at the end of chapter 20, verse 16, uh, he decided he wouldn't go to Ephesus, uh, but he wanted to spend time in Asia. He was hasting to... Uh, he, he might not have to spend time in Asia... He was hasting to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul wanted to get back to Jerusalem because he wanted to celebrate Pentecost there. But there was a plot amongst the Jews, and so he decided instead that he'd walk uh, across uh, Greece and back to uh, Philippi, and from there he would take a boat. And so from Philippi he sailed to Troas, uh, where he had been before, where he first met Timothy, and from Troas he went to Miletus. Miletus was the port attached, not too far from, from Ephesus, but a fair day's walk as well. Miletus, uh, there are still ruins there that you can look at, including the very handsome uh, theatre, not nearly as big as the one in Ephesus, but nonetheless very well preserved. And so Paul goes to Miletus and from there he sends to Ephesus and asks that the, Ephesian, the elders of the Ephesian church uh, come down to meet him there. Now this, as it's recorded by Luke in Acts 20, is the only speech of Paul's that is addressed to a purely Christian audience. The other uh, speeches that we have in in the book of Acts, uh, Paul is addressing uh, a company made up of Jews and Greeks, sometimes including Christians, sometimes including pagans. But this is the only example of a speech in Acts where Paul addresses only a Christian audience. And so on the basis of his example, he appeals to them, he makes firm requests, but he also exhorts them, he encourages them uh, to address their pastoral care priorities, remembering that he's speaking not to the whole church of Ephesus, but to those he's left behind to lead that church. 
Now, he speaks to them as one who speaks with the authority of one of the Lord Jesus Christ's apostles. And so that means he is speaking with the authority of Christ himself. There's a very interesting structure to the way that this account is represented. Uh, It's a little bit like you might think of as a sandwich. This is a a sandwich construction. Now, sandwiches are held together. Uh, The contents would fall all over the place and it would be something other than a sandwich were it not for the bread uh, on the outside. And so you look to the outside parts of the uh, way Luke has recorded this address and that's A and A, uh, verses 18 to 21. Paul looks back to his example. He finishes his address to the Ephesian elders by returning to the power of his example. So that bookends or or it's the outer casing of the sandwich. Then inside the uh, the lettuce and the the other good bits, um, verses 22 to 24, he speaks of a future threat. There's going to be trouble for him in Jerusalem. But then the second B section, um, the bottom lettuce, because you've got the bread that keeps the lettuce in, um, you've got a future threat for the Ephesians. There's going to be trouble in Ephesus. But in these sandwich constructions, the focal point of the way that it, it, the, the information is presented is the part that comes in the middle. So section C is the emotional core, the emotional heart, of this address and that's his farewell and so this is a valedictory speech but it's a speech which comes from Paul's heart and which is occasioned by tears Uh, there's tears on on Paul's behalf there's tears on the behalf of the Ephesian elders which is a sign of the great affection with which Paul was held by them and with and in which he held them after their three years together and so the final farewell is pronounced there in verse 25 and so we're going to look at it section by section Uh, Verses 18 to 21, remembering Paul's example. The first part of his example that Paul points back to is his way of life, the nature of how he lived while he was among them. And so he'd spent three years there, and those three years are an example of what Christian ministry looks like. They've got to know him, he's got to know them, they know the kind of man that he's turned out to be. And we know that from verse 19, that uh, that, uh, we know from verse 31 that he was there three years. And we read about those three years condensed into Acts chapter 19. And so Paul's able to look back and say that his ministry amongst them was characterised by humility, by emotional engagement and by suffering. And so he says in verse 19 that he served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. So in other words, it wasn't a pushover. His life, in, uh, his life of ministry in Ephesus was demanding. It was difficult. It was emotionally exhausting. And these things happened to him, this suffering happened to him through the plots of the Jews. Now, anybody who tells you that the Christian life is exempt from suffering has not read the Bible. Jesus says, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you. Paul was promised that his life would uh, entail much suffering. And, And God uses our suffering for his purposes in making us the kind of people he wants to be. And Paul says that it's a normal part of the Christian life to suffer for the gospel. Now notice he talks about serving. And so when he he writes to the Romans, there's many parallels between this speech and the sorts of issues that he addresses in his letters. So when he introduces himself to the church in Rome, he calls himself Paul, a servant of of Christ Jesus. Uh, A servant was the, uh, the person in the household who did the most menial things. Paul is prepared to do anything for the sake of the Lord Jesus because he's been bought by Jesus' blood Therefore, he will do whatever it takes to serve the Lord Jesus. He calls himself a servant and he calls 
the Ephesian elders to be servants as well. But this example of Paul shows us that ministry is not for the half-hearted. He served the Lord Jesus with humility and with tears. He wasn't put off by the emotional toll that it took on him. When he wrote to the Corinthian church, his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, he goes through a lot of the things that he suffered. But the crowning the list, the very last thing that he mentions, and probably his chief cause of grief, was he says, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So wherever Paul goes, he's praying for the churches that he's planted. He has them on his mind. He hears from them from time to time. But he was emotionally invested. Church was not a hobby for Paul. He was emotionally invested in the life and the progress of these people that had become Christians through his ministry. He deeply desired that they make progress in the faith. And it was a matter of of anxiety to him when he heard things not going well. Ministry is not for the half-hearted. Now, when he talks about trials, of course, that reminds us of the grief that he suffered in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, where he, he was almost torn limb from limb in the, uh, the riot in the theatre. And so the Ephesians know about that, and they, they know that this is a component of the example that he's set for them of persevering even through trial and suffering. He knew that that suffering was inevitable because when he was converted to faith in Christ, uh, the Lord Jesus actually told him, Ananias had to go to him, you read this in Acts 9, and tell him the things that he would suffer for the sake of Jesus. And this was a theme he returned to over and over again in his letters, that suffering, he'd been through it, and his readers and his hearers would also go through it as well. It was something, it was a part of God's purpose. It's a part of God's purpose for us that will not be part of, of the new creation. But until then, we're caught in a world of suffering and God can use even those things for his glory and for our good but the second component of the example that he points back to is the nature of his teaching and you can see that in verses 20 to 21 and so he says he didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and he taught them in public and from house to house he testified both to jews and to greeks of repentance toward god and faith in our lord jesus christ so his manner of teaching was courageous he didn't shrink in other words he didn't hesitate he didn't pull back from the implications of what it meant to preach Jesus. It got him into trouble. It, it took real courage to be able to preach the full gospel that Paul did because lots of his hearers didn't want to hear it. So being a, a minister of the gospel, being a servant of the Lord Jesus, he's going to be demanding and it will take courage. But if we're to be the kinds of servants that Jesus says well done to, then we'll need to make sure that we're amongst those who don't shrink from declaring the whole of it. His content was comprehensive. He says he'd teach anything that was profitable, anything that would build people up, he would teach it. His method was to go in public. He spoke outdoors. He went from house to house with a more personal ministry. He spoke to Jews and Greeks, to people from the synagogue and from people outside of it. So John Stott, the English pastor and preacher, in his commentary on these words, says that Paul shared all possible truth with all possible people in all possible ways because he was a gospel man and the nature of his message was this he preached of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ now Luke in his account of these things doesn't explain what either of those things means but he assumes that we already know because he's given us his whole gospel the book of Luke and we've got up to chapter 20 of the book of Acts so he's already explained these things Luke condenses things he gives us 
uh, the, the summary statements. But this is the nature of Paul's message and this is just a very simple summary of what real gospel proclamation look like, looks like. Uh, it will involve the account of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now repentance, what does that mean? Well repentance is a two-edged word. Uh, it literally means a change of mind. So someone whose mind and their thinking has been transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as well as that, it means a change of direction. And so the change of mind will issue in a change of direction, something like a U-turn. If you're headed down the wrong road and all of a sudden you realise that you need to correct, you'll do that U-turn and get, get back uh, and head in the other direction. Uh, I was uh, with a friend once and uh, we were overseas, actually in Canada, and um, he was driving, not me, um, but we went down the off-ramp of the freeway and when we saw headlights coming towards us, we did a very quick U-turn. Uh, we repented very hastily of that mistake. The book of Hebrews talks about repentance from dead works. So in other words, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking to people who invested all their trust for salvation in doing what they thought God required that they do by way of the Old Testament law. But they've repented of that. They've repented from dead works. But Paul talks in Acts 20 of repenting to God. The change of direction is from what they used to pin their hopes on to God who is all their hope. So repentance is a change of mind that issues in a change of life and a change of direction. There has to be some evidence of the inner life. But what's faith? Well, faith means trust. It means relying on something. Uh, I had an experience some years ago in go of going rock climbing when I was teaching up in Nil, I had a couple of friends who were keen rock climbers and they prevailed on me to go to Mount Arapiles and we did a fairly famous climb uh, what's called the Bard it was 120 sheer metres 120 metres of sheer terror for me um, there I was I was in between these two very experienced climbers they were good help and good advice and I was roped on and we had the uh, all of the, the, the metal gizmos that slide into the cracks in the rock to, to keep us from falling too far. But it was somewhat terrifying to look down and realise that I was so far above the earth uh, with just the blue sky and the song of the birds for my company. Uh, and there were times when it was just sheer terror. But when I got to the bottom, I thought to myself, I didn't slip once. I didn't fall off, not even once. And I thought to myself, technically, I could have done that without ropes. But I thought, I wouldn't have. It was the ropes that I relied on that gave me the confidence to even attempt it at all. Faith is trust and reliance in Jesus. Because without him, we would fall. And it would be a very bad crash. So faith in Jesus repentance towards God repentance towards God a change of mind a change of direction that comes from believing that Jesus is our saviour that's the heart of Paul's message that's what he said he preached so the second section we're into the lettuce part of the sandwich the first lot of lettuce now and Paul talks about how there's future threats for him and it's going to be because he goes to Jerusalem he says he hasn't shrunk from from teaching them all that's going to be profitable he says uh, he's going to go on to Jerusalem because he's not a person driven by personal fear. He's a person driven by a desire to do what honours Jesus. And so he says here in verse 22, 
I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Constrained means virtually to be the prisoner of the Holy Spirit. He's uh, bound, not by chains, but by love for Jesus and by the direction that the Holy Spirit has set for him. So he's using a figure of speech here. These are Roman slaves I've got a picture of here, uh, bound by the neck to each other to, to stop them from escaping. Paul is bound by the chains of love. He could have got rid of them if he wanted to. He could have just decided he didn't want to obey. But he feels that the call of Jesus on his life by the Holy Spirit is such that he has no choice but to go to Jerusalem. And so in verse 24, he gives us a sense of his idea of the proportion of life. Verse 24 tells us that um, even though he's going to Jerusalem and and will suffer, he says he doesn't account his life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. He's using language from the athletic competitions there. He's picturing himself as being an athlete who, though exhausted, is determined to make the finish line and nothing will stop him from doing that. But into the heart of his his address now, verse 25, and now, he's changing the subject slightly, he's told them about his example, and now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. This is an emotional and a sorrowful parting of ways. He knows that he won't get back to Ephesus. He knows he's quite likely to be imprisoned and perhaps die. The Ephesians have real affection for him and so they're sorrowful at the fact that they won't see him again. Now think about this. The distance from Ephesus to Miletus, I looked it up on Google Maps, uh, the short drive would take 78.4 kilometres, an hour and 10 minutes behind the wheel. But they didn't have cars. They would have had to walk. Google Maps tells me that it's about a 13-hour walk to get from Ephesus to Miletus. Now, this is interesting because it shows the extent of their affection for Paul. He couldn't get to Ephesus, but he badly wanted to see these Ephesian elders again, so he sent for them. And he waited for them to get there. They would have had to have given up at least a whole day of work to come down to Miletus. They would have spent a day with Paul and they would have had to have spent at least a whole day, that's if they can do a whole 13-hour, 78-kilometre walk uh, in a day. Uh, That was the extent of their emotional investment in Paul and their emotional investment in the gospel, that they were prepared to give up that amount of time and to exert that level of energy to meet with Paul and to hear him one more time. Paul was a man who clearly was gifted in making friends. He had an effect on people because he invested in them. And these people reflected that by the extent to which they were prepared to invest their time in hearing from him one more time. But he returns in the the second letter section uh, to future threats facing the Ephesian elders. He's spoken of the threats that have faced him in Jerusalem, but he says trouble's coming for Ephesus. So verse 26, he says, Therefore, that's a change of subject again, Therefore I testify to you this day, because he won't see them again. He won't have the opportunity to be with them. This is his last chance to warn them. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. 
Innocent, to be innocent of the blood is to use the language that the prophets used, particularly the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel twice refers to his innocence of the blood of those that have been listening to him. In other words, their life. Their life won't be accounted to him if they don't listen to what he's saying. That's what Paul's saying. He says because he invested that three years in them, because he spent that time giving them the whole counsel of God, because he didn't shrink from telling them anything that would be of profit to them, he is now innocent of their blood. He's discharged all of his duties as an apostle of the Lord Jesus in teaching these Ephesians everything they needed to know. And this last section, this last uh, warning for them is that they're going to face some very big challenges in a very uh, short space of time. When he says that he hasn't failed to declare the whole purpose of God, the whole counsel of God, uh, counsel there means purpose or plan. God has a plan. God has a purpose for his human creation. God has a purpose for the message that he's trusted to Jesus and to the servants of Jesus. We could sum it up this way. The whole counsel of God is the whole message of God, which for us is contained in the 66 books of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Any servant of the Lord Jesus, anyone serving in word ministry should make it their goal to deal faithfully and, uh, and, and enthusiastically and wholeheartedly with the whole of God's revelation to us from the, all of the 66 books from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation. Obviously, Paul didn't have all of those books at his disposal, but he used all of the scriptures that he could to get across the plan of God for the people that he was teaching. He wanted to be, he could say, I'm, I'm innocent of the blood of anybody because I've told you everything that God gave me to tell you. And that, that should be the goal of every, every church. Uh, it's a, a thing of wonder to me that so many churches have departed from the scriptures. Uh, even churches that say they believe them, believe, preach only fragments of them. Um, you simply will not get, a, get better content than the Bible. And if you want to substitute human wisdom or human psychology or human self-improvement tips for the Bible, then you're choosing something deficient and substandard. It's our task as, as preachers of the gospel and as bearers of the gospel to take the whole of God's message, everything he said, and to bring that to those who will listen. And so Paul tells them in verse 28 that they need to pay careful attention to two things, to themselves and to the flock. Now to pay careful attention means to beware, it means to be alert, it means to, to be devoted, in other words to give everything you've got to this task. To themselves, the elders, they need to keep a watch on themselves, but they also need to keep a careful flock, uh, watch on the flock, uh, which is the this figurative way of talking about the church. Now notice that this is a remark addressed to the elders, and he says there that these, these elders have been appointed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit made them overseers. Now there's some interesting things going on in the words here that really it's, it's important we pay careful attention to. Um, elders. The word elder just means an older man. That's what it means. A person of age and we trust maturity. Uh, there's two other words in here which are also vital for understanding the task of Christian leadership. These elders have been made overseers by the Holy Spirit which means they need to keep a watch over things. But their task is to care for the church of God. Now that little phrase care for there is actually a verb. And the verb is the one that comes from the word that means shepherd. 
So they've got to shepherd the church of God. The Greek word for shepherd, when it was translated into Latin, became pastor. Now, I want to point something out. I've spoken about this before, but I'm going to keep saying it because it's something that I think is often misunderstood. In the New Testament, the word pastor is only once used as a title, and that's in Ephesians chapter 4. The other times it's used as a description, an adjective, or as a verb, an action word. And in this chapter, it's translated not as shepherd, but as care for, which tells us something of the job that the the pastors of the church, the elders of the church need to do. Now, just as an example from Luke chapter uh, chapter 2, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. Uh, This is part of the Christmas story. You can see it if it was written in Latin, you'd see a word that we recognise quite easily there. In that region, there were pastors out keeping watch over their flock by night. It's the same word. Pastor means shepherd. Uh, Not a literal shepherd, a figurative shepherd because the people of God are regarded as God's flock. God's flock need to be led by shepherds. Well, what do shepherds do? According to this passage here, they need to keep a watch over them. They need to keep an eye out for danger, for the things that would cause harm to the flock. And so shepherds in those days very often had a watchtower that they could keep an eye out for thieves and for, uh, for marauding animals. And so the overseers, the elders, the shepherds or pastors need to keep a watch for the threats to the flock. But shepherds, we know, led their flock, they fed them and they protected them. And so they're the tasks that are bound up. Now, the important thing to realise in all of this is that an elder in verse 17 is the same person as an overseer in verse 28 and the same person as a shepherd or a pastor in verse 28. Three words for the same person and they all mean those who lead a Christian congregation. So the elders of Mafra Community Church are also overseers and, and also shepherds or pastors. A pastor is a shepherd, is an overseer. Do you get it? It's very important to get this. Uh, the pastor is not the person paid to lead the church. Uh, a pastor is an elder, is, a, is an overseer, a shepherd. Uh, they're all the same people. Um, Paul develops these ideas more in, in uh, First Timothy and, and in Titus uh, chapter 1 as well. Uh, but, but he uses those three words and he means, means that they should be understand, understood interchangeably. So the leaders of the church in Ephesus and the leaders of every Christian congregation ever since then, their first duty is to make sure that the flock are fed and protected. Why? Because they've been bought with the blood of Jesus. You can see that there. But then Paul goes on in verse 29 and he says that he knows that after he leaves, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So verses 29 to 30 are the threat to the life and the safety of the church in Ephesus. He says, watch out for wolves. There's threats from outside and there's threats from inside. And Paul says that it's the elder's task, the overseer's task, the shepherd's task to be alert to these and to be watchful for them. Now, these fierce wolves, verse 29 says, they'll come in among you and they won't spare the flock. That's how savage they'll be. So this is a threat from outside that comes in, into the church. But he also goes on in verse 30 and he says that some of these fierce wolves will arise from among you, from among your own number. In other words, from among the leaders of the church. And what will they be doing? 
They'll speak twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Now, who should disciples be following? Only the Lord Jesus. But there's a certain sort of fierce wolf who wants followers for themselves. So Paul says, be on the watch for wolves who will come in from the outside and wolves who will emerge from among you. Now, this is a really important thing. This is so important to get our heads around. We want to get along with everybody. I would like to be liked. Um, it seems an easier way to get along in life. Paul put a higher priority on being obedient, even if it meant that he wasn't liked. That's why he says, I haven't shrunk from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. But right the way through the New Testament, from the lips of Jesus all the way through to the apostles, we find that there is a persistent threat to God's people of the risk of false teaching. So Jesus talks about it. Uh, the apostles talk about it. They write about it. A large part of the New Testament was written to counter the effects of false teaching, to warn God's people that it was about and to show them how to identify it and how to stand against it. And so Paul, in going on about his example, he returns to the idea of his example again. And in verse 31, he talks about the work that he's done. It's been hard work. It's been protracted. It's been ceaseless. It's been intense. And so as he finishes up, as he winds up this speech to these elders that have travelled a whole day's walk to get to him, he commends them to God's protective care. He's confident that God will build them up by his word of grace and he's confident that God will enable them to fulfil their task, to see it all the way through, just as Paul has. Paul's got to almost to the finish line and he's sure that God will help them to do the same. And he says, if you, are, if you do continue and remain faithful to the end, you'll be rewarded at the end of your journey. In verse 24, Paul makes it quite plain. He's obeyed Jesus. In verse 28, he effectively asks the question of the elders, will you? And that's a challenge for us as well. Even if you're not a leader in the church, the, the, the challenge for us all is, will we see what we believe all the way through to the end? Will we continue be stout-hearted servants of Jesus to the very finish line. And so verses 36 to 38 is really quite an emotional little passage. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. So this was a parting of the ways, and it was an emotional sorrowful time and I want to finish up by just going back to the idea of, of the wolves recognizing wolves Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 15 beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves Jesus is warning that there's a certain sort of person who will have a, a powerfully bad effect on his people because they look harmless but the harm is concealed by this harm, harmless looking exterior wolves in sheep's clothing it's become a proverbial statement and so that's something that Paul's referring back to here in Acts chapter 20 in Jude 4 there's a great example of this uh, Jude says I really wanted to write about the gospel message that we all share in common but he says I couldn't because he said certain people have crept in among you and no one's noticed them he says, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, this warning against false teachers is persistent. It's over and over again. Jesus said it would be characteristic of the whole time from his return to heaven to his return to earth. The threat of false teaching is ever present. It's always about us. We would be foolish to think it could never happen to us. The point of the idea of wolves in sheep's clothing is that no one notices them. That has what, that's what happened in Jude. Uh, the, the church that Jude was writing to, these people had crept in and no one noticed. So how will we recognise wolves? I think there's some things that we can look at in this passage. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Abiding in Jesus' word is the first part of the uh, the equation here. Abiding his word remain means remaining committed to the whole counsel of God, the whole teaching of what the scriptures teach plainly. That's a sign that we're his disciples. When we know the truth, it becomes a plumb line or a measuring rod. Anything that deviates from it, we can say, well, that's error, I won't follow it. The important thing is to know the truth and anything that doesn't line up with the truth, we reject and the truth will set us free. We've already seen that the truth won't always be easy to tell. Paul says he didn't shrink from teaching them the truth. In other words, that the truth is sometimes inconvenient and it won't necessarily make us popular. We've seen this in our studies in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah was speaking to people who said to him, do not prophesy to us what is right, speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Uh, Speaking the truth is not always a popular task. So this is how to know the truth from the passage. Truth will edify, it will build you up according to verse 20. Verse 21 tells us that truth demands a belief, faith in Jesus and a response, turning to God. Uh, Truth involves the announcement of God's grace, that people don't deserve God's kindness. There's nothing we can do to work hard enough to become good enough to be eternal members of God's kingdom. Everything that God does for us is by grace. It's his generosity which is not deserved. So grace is a distinction of a distinctive of the truth. Uh, the message of the kingdom in verse 25 is at the heart of the gospel. It's a declaration that God is king, he has no rival and he is setting up his eternal kingdom where he will reign eternally forever and ever. In the meantime, the kingdom has come and it's still to come, but God is sovereign. The message of God's kingdom is an indicator of the truth. In verse 27, it's clear that uh, that truth involves telling the whole of God's story, the whole counsel of God. And so truth will make, make plain every part of it, even the difficult bits. And truth leads to holiness of living a person who's unconcerned for holy living is a person who has lost their grasp of the truth or never had it in the first place so that's how to recognize wolves how can we recognize shepherds those who are fit to lead the church of god well using paul's example he was a humble servant he was a servant even through difficult days that caused him emotional distress Humble service through trials and tears is a sign of a genuine shepherd of God's people. Uh, Public and private ministry, um, not uh, ministry which is kept secret, but which is is put out there on display uh, in various contexts. Jesus must always come first. Verse 24, 
Paul says that he, he wants above everything else to finish the race for the sake of Jesus. Uh, verse 28 tells us that careful attention is going to be required. We are going to have to care about the truth. People who are indifferent to the truth or who put too high a priority on tolerance and agreement uh, will find that the savage wolves will slip in amongst them. Uh, we need to be prepared to warn people when they've stepped away from the truth of the gospel. Uh, that's an important part of it as well. Paying attention to the nature of the leadership, making sure that the, uh, the flock is adequately fed and protected. Uh, these are other signs of genuine Christian leadership. Real Christians, re- real Christian leaders point to Jesus, not to themselves. Real Christian leaders don't look for followers of themselves. They look to help other people become devoted followers of the Lord Jesus. Paul also says that a real Christian leader will never be in it for the money. And so he supported himself. We've talked about this before. He does make provision for for congregations to support those who teach them the gospel. But Paul wanted to make sure that he gave them the gospel free of charge. So he says real Christian shepherds are not in it for the money. They work hard. They're givers not takers. So friends, watch out for wolves and pray hard for your leaders that they'll be the sort of people that we find exemplified here. But this sorrowful farewell, this valedictory speech that Paul makes has all sorts of important information for what it means to follow Jesus, to be a good church, a well-led church with people who care about the things that will see the kingdom of God proclaimed in all of its fullness and we'll see the gospel advance so that others can hear the message as well. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, there's just so much going on in this passage. Please help us to take it to heart. Help us to review it and to come back to it again and again so that we can understand what it means to be good members of the church. Please help those who lead Mafra Community Church to lead it well as as elders and overseers and shepherds, people who care to see that the church is well fed and protected I ask that you would protect our church from uh, these fierce wolves. I pray that you would help us to be diligent in applying ourselves to the truth so that we'll know error when we see it and we would be unprepared to, to compromise with it. I pray that you would help us all to be people that never flinch from declaring the truth, uh, never flinch from living for the truth. Help us to be people whose lives are characterised by a deep attachment to Jesus and all that he taught and a deep commitment to daily repenting and reorienting our life with the power that you give us by your Holy Spirit to live your way. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.